So we're, we're still in the book of Philippians, and uh, last week we entered into essentially what's a, a two-part letter of commendation. So maybe as you're reading through Philippians, you, know, you, you come through this really deep theological passage in, in 127 through 218, and it's high on instruction with the Christ hymn in 25 through 11, but then Paul changes gears, right? When he comes into this discussion about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Last week we talked about Timothy. You know, if you think about the Philippians as they received this word from Paul and they received this, this, this letter and now he's turning to this letter of commendation, you have to think that as they were reading these words, that this is kind of where their mind goes. Where Paul's like, man, it is my my plan and my desire to send you Timothy. And they're like, yes, Timothy. Man, we remember him from when he was here and you were planning this church in Philippi. And they're thinking about all these great things about Timothy. And Paul talks about him and how he is a man of proven worth. And they're like, absolutely, Timothy. And Timothy's probably in the room with Paul and Paul's dictating this and Timothy's starting to blush and think, oh, Paul, go on. I mean, I mean it's nice to hear these things. Go on. And so he's like, Timothy, I mean, just a great guy. I hope to send you. Timothy, how's a, father, how's a son with a father? He has served me in the gospel. And they're like, yes, Timothy's faithful. He says, I hope, therefore, to send him to you just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And they're like, ooh, Timothy's not coming yet. You see, when we think about Timothy, and Paul really sets up Timothy as this guy who's, I mean, he's on the A team, Right? Uh, I don't know how many of you played sports, but I typically found myself on, on the B team. A team got to rough us up. The A team got to be on the field. Justin knows what it is to be on the B team. Um, it's not great to be on the B team, right? You know, I heard uh, or I read of a conductor who a while back was asked, he said, as you look at the orchestra, what is the most difficult role to fill? What's the most difficult position to fill in the orchestra? And he said, second violin. He said, the second violin is the hardest instrument to fill in the orchestra. And people were kind of puzzled by this. They said, really, it's not the, it's not the first violin. It's the second violin. Have you been conducting very long? And he said, you know, people would often think it would be the first violin. It's very visible, challenging pieces that they play. He said, but something people don't often consider is the second violinist practices just as hard. Oftentimes the music they play is just as challenging. And they're setting this beautiful landscape for the first violin. But they receive none of the notoriety. They receive none of the fame, none of the visibility. You see, when we look at our lives and the role that we play in the propagation of the gospel, and as Christians, most of us, we're not going to be first violin. But the call on our lives, playing second violin, is, all, is just as demanding. It requires all the same amount of diligence. But most of us will never take a stage in front of thousands of people. Most of us will never write a book that will you know, reach the top of the bestseller chart. And at the end of our lives, when we're buried, if it doesn't rain, 
hopefully we'll have a good attendance at our funeral. But you see, we don't do it for recognition. We don't do it so that people will notice us. We're obedient because we're commanded to be. Paul writes to us today a person that we can much more find in common with than Timothy. You see, Timothy is on the A-team roster. Timothy played first violin. But Epaphroditus is described as a man worthy of honor. Let me read for us in verses 25 through 30 as we conclude the second chapter of the book of Philippians. Paul says in verse 25, he says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Paul sets it up and he gives them some, some words of who exactly Epaphroditus is. He says, he's my brother. He said, Epaphroditus is my brother. You remember that he spoke of Timothy as his son. Now, when Paul references Epaphroditus as his brother, what he's doing is, man, he is seeking to elevate Epaphroditus. He's seeking to elevate Epaphroditus, and necessarily because he's doing that, he's seeking to lower himself a little bit. So when Paul writes about Epaphroditus, he doesn't say, you know, Epaphroditus, he's this you know, wayward child. Man, if I could just get a handle on him. He has so much potential, but he can't seem to manage the follow-through. You see, he doesn't offer any critique here for Epaphroditus, but what he says of him, he says that he is my son. He goes on and he describes him, he says he's my fellow worker. He says he's my fellow worker. He's not a a servant, he's not a slave to Paul, but he's this person that he's working alongside of. You see, in a a work environment, you you have employees and you have supervisors, you have bosses, right? Everybody understands that whether or not you've had a job you can probably recognize that pretty quick that there's somebody telling somebody what to do and there's certain people doing that right everybody resonates with that Paul speaks of Epaphroditus it's interesting he doesn't characterize it himself and say so I've I've been Epaphroditus' supervisor for the last three weeks and while his general work ethic is exemplary I found him often taking naps you know, he doesn't even say, as his supervisor, I can give him a high recommendation. But what he does, what he does is say, man, he is my fellow worker. Now, you might ask yourself, what work is this that Epaphroditus is doing? The work that Paul describes is advancing the gospel. You see, when Paul looks at Epaphroditus, he recognizes somebody who's thoroughly invested in advancing the gospel. And he looks at him and he says, man, this is a guy that I have worked, that I have labored with. 
and he has worked and he has labored alongside me. Epaphroditus is a fellow worker in the gospel with Paul. Now check this out. The third thing he says of him, he says that he is my fellow soldier. And we'll know from reading in Ephesians chapter 6, if you flip in my Bible one page over to the left, this is what Paul says. He's my fellow soldier. But what's he battling against? Has Paul declared war in the Roman Empire? Is he saying, now look, I've got this strategy. I've been playing a lot of risk lately, and I think we can take the U.S. if we head in through Alaska, through the Kamchatka Peninsula. No, I mean, that might be a decent strategy for the game of risk, but what Paul is talking about is found in, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Check this out. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, Paul rightly recognized a spiritual component at work against them. Paul rightly recognized the spiritual component at work against them. It worked against the propagation of the gospel. You see, it wasn't just circumstance. It wasn't just a collection of bad things happening. It wasn't just the fact that he was in prison. But what he recognized, and what you and I need to recognize, is that we don't struggle against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood manifests a spiritual reality. But what we struggle against, what we war against, is a spiritual enemy. What we war against is a spiritual enemy. Now, having offered them three points of Paul's identification with Epaphroditus, he he flips it. And what he wants to do in this is to remind the Philippians exactly who Epaphroditus is to them. And so he says, he's your messenger. You see, the church in Philippi gathered together and they selected people and they sent them out. And part of what they carried was this message and this kind of a status update. They didn't have Facebook. They couldn't just, you know, uh, doing well, smiley face, uh, a hashtag, together for the gospel. You know, they couldn't just send out a tweet and say, uh, you know, uh, food not great, striving to get, oh, too many characters, you know, start backspacing it. They're not limited by characters. What they're doing, though, is sending out Epaphroditus, and he's supposed to carry this message to give Paul an idea of how well they're doing. And in some ways, that's what he's sending back to them in this letter to the Philippians. He's addressing some of the things that he's heard from Epaphroditus. And so he's, he's a messenger on behalf of the Philippian church, but he's also a minister to Paul's need. He's a minister to Paul's need. You see, when they got together and they knew Paul was in Rome, they knew Paul faced a reality that if you and I went to prison today, I don't, why are you going to prison? Carol B., why are you going to prison? If, that if you and I went to prison today, that we wouldn't face. You see, they faced a reality that their care, that their, their food, that their clothing and all these things weren't provided by the state. It's a radically different situation than you and I would find ourselves in today if we, like Carol B., found ourselves in jail. And so they gathered together and they said, you know, we need to provide for Paul. We need to give Paul some money. Because, man, he needs to buy some food. I'm sure his sandals are going to wear out. I'm sure he's going to need an extra cloak or two. We need to provide Paul some money. So they went around and they started gathering up this, this mission, this love offering to give to Paul. And so having gathered this up together, they grabbed Epaphroditus and they grabbed some other folks to go with him. And they said, would you guys all go? Would you take this 
to Paul. You see, they sent Epaphroditus on a mission trip. A mission trip to bring Paul some assistance. They were offering him financial support. Now, in verse 26, we see that something went wrong. Reading again, we see that something happened to Epaphroditus. He says, I thought it necessary to send him to you, for he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you, he heard, you heard that he was ill. You see, at some point in this trip, at some point in this 800-mile journey, Epaphroditus got sick. And so you can imagine as they head out from Philippi, and they're, they're journeying on this long journey to Rome, and they're carrying this money, Epaphroditus gets sick somewhere in the midst of this trip. And so they come together, and they're like, what are we going to do? Epaphroditus is sick. And they say, go, somebody needs to go back and needs to tell the church in Philippi that he's not doing well. And so one from the group leaves, and they go back to Philippi, and they start telling people, man, we were going, we're on the trip, everything is going well, everybody's getting along. Epaphroditus, he gets sick. Now, growing up, I lived outside the country for 11 years. And it was pretty often that, that my brother and I would come home from school, and we'd see my mom on the phone. And man, she'd be crying, tears streaming down her face. My brother and I would walk in and say, Mom, what happened? What's going on? And it would be, I remember one time we walked in and she says, your uncle just called me. Your cousin's been in a car crash. I said, well, what else do you know? She's like, that's all I know right now. All I know is he's been in a crash. If you've ever received bad news, you know where your mind goes. You, you, you picture the most horrific accident you picture this awful worst case scenario when, it, when the people in Philippi heard what had happened to Epaphroditus I mean that's where their mind went they were distraught and when Epaphroditus recovers his first thought is man they're going to think I'm dead they're going to think I didn't recover and he's distraught over that. He's distraught because they're upset. He's distraught not because he was sick, not because he endured this horrible thing, but because people that care for him are upset. That's the level of caring we see in Epaphroditus. And then to point to the severity of Epaphroditus' condition, Paul continues in verse 27. He says, indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. You see, there's a, a variety of commentators have written on Epaphroditus, and they've said some pretty negative things about Epaphroditus. And some people have said, well, Epaphroditus was probably one of these guys that was just given to melancholy. He was given to sadness. Or I remember when Valerie and I were serving in Prague, and we'd been in Prague a couple of months, and we're sitting in our apartment thinking about the sorry state uh, of our team. We came into kind of a, a rough team situation, people not getting along, people not really wanting to, to play well, share their toys with other people. And so we came into that situation. I mean, it, just, it was awful. It was miserable. We're the new kids on the block, and everybody else isn't talking. It's kind of like walking into a room. Two people have been arguing, 
and they just stop talking when you walk in. All the air gets sucked out. And you're like, hey guys, how you doing? And they're all like, mm. We walked into a city of, mm. And so this one day we're sitting in our apartment. And we're listening to Amos Lee, for any of you who like music. We're listening to Amos Lee on the radio. And the song's playing in the background. All of a sudden, I look over, she's crying, she looks at me, I'm crying. Man, we were homesick, we were facing culture shock, and it was a miserable feeling. You see, I'm sure there were those who, upon hearing of Epaphroditus, were thinking, man, he's, Epaphroditus, he's that guy that always had the sniffles, isn't he? Epaphroditus, he, remember when he was a kid, he walked around, he had cars, band-aids all over him, he had Finn McMissile, he had Mater, he had Lightning McQueen. I mean, he looked like a box of band-aids just threw up all over him. I mean, that's, that's what they think of when they think of Epaphroditus. And so, Paul, man, ever careful in his choice of words, writes to them, and he says, indeed, he was ill. He puts a stop to that conversation, he says, hey, look, Don't speculate. Don't think that Epaphroditus wasn't really sick. You see, he was near to death. You see, when we think about somebody uh, that's that's gravely ill today, we think, what's your your course of action? What are the doctors going to do to make you better? And so our 21st century minds always go to the fact that there must be a fix for this. There must be a fix for the situation that people find themselves in. But what does Paul say healed Epaphroditus? Does Paul write and he says, well, you realize it's my yeoman service and my first century chicken noodle soup recipe that my mother gave to me that made him better. I've also included that on the back page of this letter. No. You see, when Paul writes to him, with this first century reality that when somebody's gravely ill, their next step is the grave, when he writes to him, he says this. He says, God had mercy on him. Epaphroditus is sick. He really was sick, nearly to death. But God had mercy on him. You see, when you and I pray... When you and I pray for those that are sick, for those that are hurting, what I wonder is, are there times we do it out of this deep sense of Christian obligation? When you hear that somebody is sick, you almost feel like the next step for you is to throw up this prayer for them, to spit out a a petition to God. But somewhere in the back of our minds, the thought is, I hope they have good insurance. I hope that doctor knows what he's doing. And we forget the fact, we neglect neglect the thought that, man, God holds life in his hand. That God is both the giver and the sustainer of life. So when we pray and ask God to have mercy on someone, when we pray and we ask in accordance with, with his will that he would heal somebody, We do so with the understanding that God, lest God move, this person will not be healed. Lest God responds, this person will not get better. Now this isn't me saying that we need to, you know, 
not go see doctors, that if you're taking medication, that's the only thing keeping you alive, not to take it. Please, please take that medicine. But what we need to recognize, what we need to realize is that God gifts those men and women to care for us and that even in taking medicine, God gifts those people to develop those medicines. Man, that unless God moves and unless God has mercy on us and those around us, there is no hope. And that's why we pray for people. So you might ask yourself, well, what about the people that aren't healed? What about the people that don't recover? See, this is when it gets difficult. This is when our faith is pushed to the test. There are times when God doesn't move in the way that we would want Him to, right? I remember standing beside my grandmother and crying out to God to heal her. And He chose not to. But God is loving. His ways are above our ways. He is infinitely compassionate. And we need to recognize that God is the one who is both the giver and the sustainer of life and that he has numbered our days. So when Paul writes and he says to them that Epaphroditus was, was ill, was gravely ill, and that God had mercy on him, what he doesn't mean is that he managed to get better. What he means is, is that God healed him. But look how tightly Paul is associated with Epaphroditus. What does he say? He says, he, says you, he was actually gravely ill, but God had mercy on him. Fantastic. This is great news. God had mercy on Epaphroditus. And then he moves on the letter. No, what he says is that, that God had mercy on him, but not on him alone. He had mercy on me too. You see, Paul was so captivated. He was so tied in and so loving towards Epaphroditus, that for Epaphroditus to die. You see, Paul's in jail. He's already facing tremendous sorrow, tremendous suffering for the gospel. And that what Paul recognizes is not just God's healing hand in Epaphroditus' life for his own sake, but he recognizes God's healing hand in Epaphroditus' life for Paul's sake too. You see, when we pray for people, when we pray for their healing, when we ask God to move in somebody's life, do we do so out of a sense of obligation or out of a deep sense of care, bringing their request before the throne of God? How deeply are we loving people? How deeply are we caring for them? You see, verse 28, Paul continues to show us the great care that he has for people. He says, and I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. You see, Paul, Paul writes to them, and he has this deep sense of urgency to send Epaphroditus. Now, if there is ever somebody in need, Paul is a person in need. But check this out. Paul is living his life in accordance with the instruction that he's giving to the Philippians. 
He's not looking to his own interest, to the things that would benefit him, but he's looking at the interest of others also. And in this case, the reality that he comes to is it's more necessary, it's more important for Epaphroditus to go to them, to care for them, than to stay and to minister to Paul. Man. And check this out. He says, his return should cause you to rejoice. Essentially give him a warm welcome. You see, Epaphroditus is on this mission trip. He's meant to carry a message. He's meant to carry financial assistance for Paul. But most likely, most likely the Philippian church had this understanding that he's going to be there until something works out with Paul. He's going to be there until either Paul is freed or an execution sentence is handed down and Paul dies. And so his return early would have led to questions. Would have led to, why are you returning? You see, when Valerie and I were serving overseas, we had friends that were missionaries that would end their terms early. So they'd sign up for three years, they'd only make it two, and they would come back. And, and whether it was health reasons, uh, something happened in the States, or just for whatever reason, the first thought that would occur to these people is, when I go back, people are going to think I couldn't make it. When I go back, people are going to think that I wasn't strong enough, that I wasn't dedicated enough. And while that is the case for some, man, it is not the case for Epaphroditus. So Paul writes them, and he says, it's, it's, it's me, it's Paul. I am eager to send him to you. This is a decision that I'm making. This isn't Epaphroditus coming to me and saying, Paul, um, Rome hasn't been working out the way I thought it would. Um, I had a good thing going in Philippi. Could you just, could you work in a little bit, be like, you know, you heard that he was sick, and maybe you could use the word gravely ill. That would, I think that would probably, yeah. And then if you could say something like, um, uh, like you, I mean, maybe it's your idea. Maybe you're right that it's your idea to go back. See, Epaphroditus didn't come to Paul and say, hey man, could you, could you spin this for me a little bit? But Paul realized that that's where people's minds go. Paul realized that, that oftentimes we want to see the worst, we want to see the weakest in people. So he addresses that again. He says, I am the more eager to send him to you so that you might rejoice at seeing him again. And Paul says that his return will make me less anxious. See, Epaphroditus came to Rome to see Paul to carry this message, to carry this financial gift. And so to a certain degree, Paul feels some culpability. He feels some responsibility for the sorry state of affairs that Epaphroditus found himself in. And this is what this produces in Paul. Anxiousness. Because he's reflecting on the fact that the Philippians are sorrowful, that they're upset, that they're concerned at the health of Epaphroditus. And Paul realizes, man, if I wasn't in jail, he wouldn't have come. And so to a certain degree, this has led to a sense of anxiousness on his part. But even though he needs Epaphroditus, he gives him up and sends him back to the Philippians for their benefit. And so Paul then offers a word of instruction, essentially, for how they should receive him in verses 29 and 30. He says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy. And honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been to a, to a going-away party for somebody. Uh, when Valerie and I left and we were going to Prague, we had this going-away party 
at her mom's house, and it also coincided with a birthday party, uh, I think it was like 80, 80th birthday for her grandfather. And so they had this cake that said, you know, like, happy 80th birthday! And then like the subtext of it is, oh yeah, Matt and Valerie have a good two years. And so we're at this party, and people are like, Paul, happy birthday! You're an octogenarian! Congratulations! I don't get to use that, very, that word very often in conversation. And so, you know, he's 80 years old, they're very excited for him, and they're just, you know, oh, you know, 80 years, how's that? And then people are like, hey, you guys are in town? Yeah, we drove down from Fort Worth. What are you in town for? Well, you know, we're leaving to go to Prague. Oh, you're moving? You're like, well, yeah. Yeah, this is a joint party. Uh, The hats all say it. The streamers, the banner, they all communicate that. Happy birthday, see you later. But it was more like, Happy birthday! What are you guys doing here? Right? And so when Paul writes this to them and he says, this is how the reception be for Epaphroditus. I mean, don't tack it onto something. Don't, don't just, you know, well, as a part of our normal gathering today, we want to recognize a special guest. Epaphroditus is back. You guys remember him. Mr. Sniffles, Mr. Band-Aid. He's back. Uh, next, next item of business. No, he says, throw him, throw him a party. He says, have this mindset of enduring welcome that you should continue to help him be returned. He says, receive him in the Lord. He characterizes it. He says, it should be a joyous return for him. You see, he's saying, put the thought of why he's returning so far out of your mind. And the thing that you should be captivated with is that you should honor such men. You see, Paul's competing against a mindset that says you honor victors. You honor people that overcome. You honor people that are winners. Epaphroditus suffered, and he's returning early. But this is what Paul says. He says, you honor men like this. You honor men like this who give their all. And even though they might not achieve whatever whatever mark that you set out in your mind, these are the type of people that you honor. You see, as a church, our measure for how well we do missions and how well we care for our missionaries, like you just heard from Jack and Lydia, is how well we receive them when they return. It's how well we receive them when things aren't going well. You see, they could have said, well, we should have sent somebody else. Paul stops and he says, man, you're headed down the wrong path. You honor men like this. You honor men like Epaphroditus because he nearly died in his service. Now last week Paul did this with Timothy. And we see this again in Epaphroditus. Paul is making an allusion to the Christ hymn in 2, 5 through 11. You see, he does it in this way. He says, Epaphroditus nearly died in his service to God. And what did Christ do? Christ was obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. So Paul's drawing their minds back. You'll remember that this is, this is read out loud for them, and so they're drawing on these sounds that the words make. And so when they hear, they're like, yes, Christ obedient to the point of death. Epaphroditus nearly to death. And their minds begin to make that connection. 
that this is somebody who has given his, you know, was prepared to give his life, risk his life for the advancement of the gospel, for the benefit of Paul, for the benefit of somebody else. In the words of Leonard Ravenhill, the great evangelist, come back to us that we asked last week. Is what you're living for worth Christ dying for? Paul ends with this odd phrase. He says that Epaphroditus was at work to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You see, Epaphroditus was, was making up for the fact that the Philippian church wasn't able to be there, present, ministering to Paul. Paul's not saying, you, you know, you remember when I was in Philippi, when we met with Lydia, when we met with the jailer? Well, uh, I paid the tab when we all went out to eat, and, and I, I still haven't been reimbursed for that. But Epaphroditus came to cover that. See, Paul's not making some mention of their deficiency. He's not making some mention of their inability to fulfill their obligation to him. Paul is referencing instead that Epaphroditus was prepared to give it all to minister in Paul's presence. Now for a people that are probably only ever going to play second violin, for a people that are probably never going to stand on a stage in front of thousands of people, that are probably never going to write books to be read and to be on the New York Times bestseller list, We model our lives after the type of following that Epaphroditus had. But check this out. We refer to Epaphroditus as this guy that played second violin. If you read Paul, Paul is a man who understood the call in his life to be a life of being second. A life of putting others first. A life of advancing other people's needs over his own. You see, the call in Christianity is always others first. And our prayer would be that our life would reflect Christ first and us second. Let me pray for us.